Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Welcome back. Great to have you aboard once again for the seventh, yes, seventh season of Luck on Sunday. Two and a half hours for you to feast on the delights of the last week in top company. This is what we've got coming up. And on a royal occasion on Town Moor, what an appropriately named winner. Continuous embodying this extraordinary run of success for Aidan O'Brien just after his 4,000th winner and Ryan Moore, who was deeply impressed with this horse. What now for the son of Hearts Cry? We'll talk to the trainer very shortly. Another shade of blue in front in Canada. Master of the Seas spearheaded a grade one double for Charlie Appleby and his team at Woodbine. We'll be showing you that. And we'll be talking to a man who's had some success in those silks as well. Harry Burns. He's been hit with a two-month ban from the BHA in a highly unusual case. He joins me in the studio to tell you more and to tell you about how he manages to ride whilst also managing his Crohn's disease. Abby McGregor of the Gamblers Consumer Forum joins us in the studio a little later on to discuss affordability, reaction to the white paper and the Gambling Commission. Irish racing rocked this week by its biggest doping scandal. Billionaire businessman trainer owner Luke Comer has had his licence withdrawn for three years. We get reaction from the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board's Dara O'Loughlin shortly after 10 o'clock. The name Sangster has been part of racing's firmament now for many decades. The latest sign of the dynasty is making a deep impression in the training ranks. Ollie Sangster makes his first visit to the Luck on Sunday studios. Very pleased to say that my two lieutenants today are Richard Hoyles, fresh from um, revelling in the, the delights of, uh, of their majesties on, on town more. And uh, Neil Channing, everybody's favourite monarchist, joining us for the beginning of season seven. Richard, you can get flavour of the atmosphere yesterday at Donny? Oh, I like the fact that it was so sort of informal in a way, in the sense that it didn't have that prepared nature of royal visits where there's people standing there from seven in the morning waving flags who are ardent monarchists. I mean, I was, but, you know. <laughs> I like the fact that, you know, 25 minutes before the race, they were both in the paddock with mm. nobody else there um, and engaging with the crowd. And whatever you think of the monarchy and its relevance to modern society, I do think that the informal nature of the day had a relaxed atmosphere. William Haggis... The horse was in the paddock 15 minutes before the race, well before everything else. So oh, I just think that those yeah. there were able to enjoy the day, and I think that revolved around those two as well. So I, th I think it was a very enjoyable experience that added a different tweak to a great race. And Doncaster, before the St Ledger, it does have an energy of its own, doesn't it? With that paddock in front of the grandstand, it really works as a... Oh, lovely. You know, a place and a space. I certainly, I stand in that commentary box, one of the best in the country, looking down, and that sort of buzz and hubbub rises. And it was just, I thought it was nicely, nicely staged. And there were some really good little touches, including uh, a lady who'd been there when Dunfermline had won in 1977, who wasn't told she was going to be part of the, the line to meet mm. the Majesties if they turned up. 
and uh, was there looking absolutely stunned. So, look, whatever you think of the royal family, I thought it played out very well yesterday, and it was nice to see them engage with the sport and the public in a relaxed atmosphere. In terms of the result, Neil, it was one of those where you sort of went, oh, yes, of course that happened. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And then tried to work out why... Why it was three to one, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I didn't back it, but I kind of thought, oh, I sort of expected that to go off shorter. I'd made my bet in the morning and didn't really think about that two minutes before the off. I probably should have done. Um, yeah, in terms of the Royals, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the idea of having a Royal family. I think the, you know, France... Gets many, but, but you know, you surprise many, me. Many <laughs> visit, they you get many. You surprise France me. get many visitors to their palaces without actually forking out on on royals, and uh, you know, I think they had the right idea some years ago. But um, you know, Legoland gets more visitors than Windsor Castle in a year. But putting that aside, I can see the importance for racing, and I, I actually, although I'm not a royalist, I'm a racingist if that's a thing. And I was watching it thinking, well, this is, you know, this is pretty damn good for racing. And I, I don't really have a problem with that kind of, uh, sort of weird spot to be in. And in terms of, in terms of the, the horse itself, um, he ran well enough to make the king look pretty excited by the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely, because he sweated up beforehand and I think everyone was the fearing... The king? Well, I think... <laughs> 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 well, thankfully, I don't need gelding. Um, I mean, I think the, the thing from the, the, the actual race was the horse ran well enough to justify yeah. the visit and give you a modicum of excitement. I don't know what you were saying before. I mean, I, I don't know whether you can remember um, possibly the second last Royal Ascot that the Queen attended. Mm -hmm. And I, it felt, and um, I think um, the now King and Queen were in attendance a couple of the days. It slightly felt, looking at it at the time, like they weren't fancying it that much. I felt like this year at Royal Ascot and yesterday, it looked like they were bang up for it. Mm. Loving, loving it, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's him that's changed a little bit. I think she was always quite into it, mm. I think. I don't know. I mean, I'm only watching it on the telly. I'd, yeah, I'd always felt him rather stilted and et cetera, and what you've mm. seen. And it did, I, I didn't get that impression. Um, and, yeah, you know, we've all had that disappointment of travelling miles to see your horse run mm. absolutely dreadfully. Hopefully it will lead to more interaction mm. with the, the racing industry. And that's what we really need. We'll be chatting about that a little bit later on. But... Racing has got a pretty bad press at the moment and is fighting lots of battles. And I think the fact that whatever you think of those battles, it's important that it stays right there in the public gaze rather than just gets pushed to the periphery. Yeah, well, if we can get him to a few non-premier meetings yeah, next year, that'll be great. <laughs> Racing League, I think. <laughs> well, we'll be talking about all that later in the programme. I want to talk a little bit more about Continuous and what impact he might have on the remainder of, of 2023, Richard. Yeah, I mean, he, he looked slightly more versatile than a... Ledger winner, that's not to degrade the race, but you know from your pedigrees, etc., that normally winning the ledger is something of a poison chalice. But he seemed to win it relatively swiftly with a turn of foot. Um, I'd overcomplicated the race, I think, in my own mind about his success at, at York. Um, a drop back to 12 furlongs wouldn't seem to be a major issue for him. And he obviously has an interesting pedigree being by heart's cry. Mm. So as a result, there might be a little bit more momentum from Coolmore yeah. to go down that path rather than with a scorpion or, a, you know, where you're probably already aware that you're in the dead end of, of jumping as regards pedigrees. I, I just wondered, given, given that, that, that that might be a Japan Cup play yeah, after the year for him. You know, why not? They've got so many, so many good horses to you know, swap and change around. You know, he's a super tough horse. 
And they've look, been looking to move away from the Galileo lines, and this year has been fantastic for them because mm. you've had Wooden Bassett's mm. running well yeah. that they've already got. Uh, you've got Deep Impact, um, you know, through Rodin. Saxon Warrior mm. and already an mm. August Rodin now, and potentially you've now got Hearts Cry, who of course yeah. is no longer with us, I don't think, either, representing another. Uh, Japan line. Uh, and another Sayuni with Paddington. Yes. Dubawi with Henry Longfellow. So all of a sudden, what looked a sort of, what say, one-trick pony is very unfair, but you know what I mean. You're worried about how you differentiate your sires who will come from the same lines. All of a sudden, you've been dealt a very, very good hand. So commercially, mm. I think at the end of the season, if we were looking back at our year, we'd be thinking we'd been, you know, on the flop, Neil. You've, got, suppose, you've I, been dealt three pretty good cards. And also, actually, if you think, if you'd have been told, uh, you know, the ledger's going to have, you know, four from Aidan O'Brien, Yep, three from Gosden. Uh, yeah. yeah, having a three to on the field race was, was pretty, you know, it was a competitive race. And, you know, there's been a few sort of murmurings recently about, you know, two, two Cornwall horses in the same race and, you know, the favourite winning and the other one, you know, maybe, I, don't, I mean, I guess he got a slight run through yesterday. Um, yeah, I haven't watched it back in, because mm. he, he appeared on the scene relatively swiftly and I need to track his path back. There wasn't, sometimes as well, you know, when Aidan, mm. you know, has mm. plenty of cards in the deck, you're aware that some of them are in there to maybe interrupt exactly. others. Yeah. But I didn't feel I didn't that feel during that. the course yeah. of the race. Yeah. I thought like Gregory three, and Denmark three set, three a, hold ups. Yeah, 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 set a reasonable yeah. pace. Yeah. Whether or not there was one that, you know, and just move to the right on a call. Well, maybe. Just, but, but at the same time, I didn't feel it compromised the result in any shape or form. Mm. He was, he was by some way oh, yeah, the best yeah, horse on the day. Hundred percent. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Good race. I, I thought. I mean, I thought the front five have all got some some significant upside moving forward. I'd been surprised that Frankie had chosen a rest earlier on in the in the mm. week, but he was he was proven to be spot on on that ground. I think, mm. Richard. Yeah, I think that was key. Gregory, I'd, I'd expected a much better display, but I wouldn't knock how he was written. He, he did enough, and he just couldn't, he didn't have the pace to get away when he took over from Denmark. Uh, then a rest was there. The form lines probably weren't quite as strong when you look back to continuous his, um, you know, rather better level that mm. he'd probably been running in than a rest. And obviously both ran in, you know, or he ran in the derby and the French equivalent for continuous. Um, I was left with the impression that Continuous was a better horse mm. than I had anticipated. Mm. Was there a big Frankie further around Doncaster yesterday? I think it probably played second fiddle to the Royals, mm. which made a rather different narrative. You'll get hit over the head about the Frankie factor, it's last this, last that. And I really do hope it is the last this and last that, otherwise <laughs> it will be very tiresome next time around. But it is, it was his last classic and it yeah, was. Yeah. So, you know. Where, um, where, where is he today? Uh, Sweden, isn't it? Sweden. Bro Park. Mm. Yeah. Bro Park, they down Royal last week. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Some bands retire on one concert and announce it on stage. I just want to get one last hurrah. I think it's good. I think, it, I, I, you know, like, at the end of the day, it must put some numbers on the gate at some of these places. And, uh, you know, that's yeah, I mean, it's be been made thing. of that commercial relationship, hasn't it? But yes, it's got, you know, you wouldn't pay anything for anyone to go somewhere unless there was some return. Yeah, I, I didn't really mind that, the whole, you know, he's, he's a, he's a self-employed businessman. Can't he ask for a fee? I mean, I, I've heard we might even get paid for this today. Did, really? <laughs> Um, Bro Park, incidentally, will be live on Racing TV this afternoon. So if you want to see Frankie Dettori in action at Bro Park, you're in the right place. We are hoping to connect with Aidan O'Brien very shortly to talk a little bit about Continuous and some of his hopes for the uh, remainder of the autumn. I want to touch upon uh, probably another one of the, the big stories this week at Doncaster, Richard, which is Trushan bouncing back to form in the Doncaster Cup. Uh, Holly Doyle, a uh, regular partner. I mean, when, he, when he's on song, this horse, he kind of half takes charge, doesn't he? Well, he did certainly this time around, didn't he? And it was, it was an unusual race. It was sort of an elongated Shaquille, if that makes sense, <laughs> in the sense that you were left with the 
uncertainty as to how much had been jockey deliberation or just a question of, well, I just can't fight any longer. You know, mm. It was in the July Cup that Shaquille was re, you know, pulling and basically carried forward. And you just thought Holly's just finally had enough of fighting this horse so much that, and in doing so, she got some track position. The others mm. probably, you know, Coltrane obviously the benchmark horse probably ran mm -hmm. below par and you know whether it played out ideally for Sweet William to get the you know to be in front of that group mm. he's always wanted to hit the front late and effectively he was forced to go and lead that side away from Trushan and he definitely did falter inside the final hundred yards but it's a it's a really good feel-good result mm. for you know it's a jumping star result on the flat isn't it a much loved older horse making a triumphant return off the back of the odd issue or two. I think he, he's Got a bit of stick, hasn't he, Alan King? Sometimes for quite late withdrawals, and I mean, it's just a horse that wants soft ground, doesn't it? I mean, you know, it got soft ground, and it shouldn't be that much of a shock, really. But and Coltrane probably doesn't really like that ground. That no, much, maybe that was yeah. the case with him. I also wondered whether the actual right on the inside of the running rail was where you wanted to yeah, be. Although, yeah, to yeah, be fair, yeah, yeah. You know, the horse that beat him was was there. So, mm. you know, it's 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 an interesting one, but. Yeah, look, it's not so much campaigning soft grounds to whether it suits the horse, it's mm. the damage it can potentially do, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and I think off the back of, at least the public take the race the horses to their heart, but I mm. think particularly after the success in the plate, I think mm. that was the one that really endeared everyone about a quality horse in a handicap. Yeah, a bit yeah, like an Africa yeah. weekend in the Portland. You know, when top yeah. weight rated well into the hundreds mm. gives weight away, that's something that we hark back to from mm. the jumping days of Desert Orchid Definitely. rather than sort of what you get in the modern... Mind you, people, I, I don't know, people did get, I, I thought it was great, the plate, but I, people did get slightly carried away, like it was the best weight-carrying performance since, of all, since all time, yeah. you know, like, uh, yeah. I think it's more the dynamic, that they're prepared yeah. to do it. I yeah, think yeah, that's good, well that's on, good for know, racing, yeah, I, I agree, I agree. Essentially, you mentioned Dan Aft there, Mick Appleby, it was a good week for him, winning well, the Portland mm -hmm. and the Flying Shields with yeah, Big Evs, yeah, and yeah. I, I was concerned after the Nunthorpe that Big Evs might have shot his bolt, but not a bit of it, he really impressive. The first, you know, furlong and a half was absolutely spellbinding. I mean, he flew out the stalls, gained his momentum, and was two lengths clear in a blink of an eye. And then you're wondering, okay, are you a sort of, you know, cheap speed is unfair, but we've seen plenty of good two-year-olds who get caught up physically during the course of the year by other horses, and to maintain it, it was really, really, really yeah. good. So you know. Um, the other horses that were up there with him, Francis Menel, I think, was tried to, you know, was, was out the back. Mm. So the, the second and third both came from the rear. There's no reason you can really knock it. Um, he's been the, the best sprinting two-year-old. I don't know. They're going to the Breeders, aren't they? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what they. Yeah, which will suit yeah. that Breeders' Cup <coughs> turf sprint. Mm. Yeah, I think given you've tried against the older horses, mm. the Abbey probably doesn't mm. really work, does it? You've been beaten once. Why would that be any mm. different? Um, just to obviously, it'll be gate speed or be. The gate speed advantage that the horse has in the think, UK. Do you, do you think is will he, be less given that we've seen what we saw at Doncaster, is it now easy to say that in the Nunthorpe he just didn't match up against the older horse? The yard, were, or, the yard uh, were quiet. Yeah, the yard I, were I quiet. kind of wonder whether mm. we've proved it conclusively yet with mm. that one, but I, I don't know. I mean, they're not going All to right. the Abbey anyway. Well, Big Evs may well be going to the, the Breeders' Cup. One man who will have a bigger Breeders' Cup team than anyone else is uh, Aidan O'Brien. And, of course, he is the hero of the hour, courtesy of Continuous, providing him with a seventh victory in the Betfred St. Ledger. He joins us on the line now. Aidan, good morning. Hey, good morning, Mick. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Congratulations. How is Continuous this morning? Good. Seems to be fine, uh, Matt. Uh, or Nicky seems to be uh, fine. Um, I just went for a walk there, and uh, Andrew uh, and Randy seem to be very happy with him. Uh, and what's the plan now, Aidan? Uh, still, still minded to, to head to the Ark with him? 
if it's possible, uh, Nick, um, obviously we'll see how he is uh, for a week. Um, I think if he was going to the Ark, he would have to be supplemented at the middle of next week. Uh, so we'll see how he is and, and speak to the lads and see what they want to do. Uh, that's what we usually do, Nick. Uh, Ryan Moore was saying yesterday that he's a horse that he thought quite a lot of as a two-year-old. In the middle part of this season, could you imagine that he was doing what he was doing yesterday? Um, yeah, I suppose uh, like, we liked him a lot. I think he was unbeaten at two and group win and unbeaten two-year-old. Um, and obviously he had a he had um, he did a, he had a setback in the spring and he didn't get to start until the Dante and uh, he was just ready to just barely ready to run and uh, we were kind of surprised how well he ran really I suppose so um, and uh, obviously then we made the decision we went to uh, France for a mile and a quarter with him um, for the Derby instead of obviously going to the Epsom Derby so um, and that just didn't work. Um, and then I suppose he came back then, I think he went to Ascot after that and for a mile and a half and uh, was very slowly run mile and a half and he ran very well but we still weren't sure because the pace was so slow. Mm. Um, and then I suppose the rest is history obviously and then he had another break and uh, he went to York and uh, he won a strongly run mile and a half and then like obviously that was the first time we really got a proper look at him. And uh, he won very well that day. So, um, no one, so obviously, uh, he's out of a fast enough family, and, but he's by Hearts Cry. And I think in Japan, Hearts Cries usually stay. So uh, he handled the knees in the ground. But there was obviously a chance that he could stay. And, and obviously, yeah. he did have Ryan getting a super ride, Nick. Um, could the Japan Cup be a, a plan for him? Yeah, listen, I, I think everything is open to him at the moment. Um, like, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's a strong traveller, he's quick and. Uh, handles all types of ground, so I, I think all, everything is open to him at the moment. And, and the horse who, who ran a really good race in defeat, Tower of London, is he still Melbourne Cup bound? Is that still in the mix for him? Yeah, it, yeah. Just for, I'm not sure. He, he has to be. Um, he has to get through all the hoops mm -hmm. before then. Uh, whether that is, will happen or not, I'm not sure. So um, obviously they have to go through all those scans and all that, and, and it's obviously it's uh, very difficult to do that. And Aidan, I, I know you are tight for time today, but I did just yeah. want to ask about a couple of the two-year-olds to, to, yeah. for the back end of the season. Just how you're going yeah. to split up, where you're going to go with Henry Longfellow, City of Troy, what's the what's the plan with them? Yeah, at the moment, uh, um, City of Troy has been trained for the Dewhurst, and that, that's the plan at the moment. Um, Henry Longfellow obviously has his uh, winners group one now, and he's had three runs, so he has plenty of experience, so he doesn't have to go anywhere, really. Uh, so I suppose it'll depend on where they'll all fall in after that. But like um, Henry Longfellow might have to take a step back for some of the horses that haven't competed in those races yet. Um, but he, he is in good form. Um, that we're, we're delighted with City of Troy. And, and City of Troy, you still got it in your mind that you might have a, a go on dirt just to see if he's a Kentucky Derby horse? No, probably not, Matt. Uh, okay. changed. So, yeah, probably not. Uh, we just want to just make sure to to uh, make sure to keep him very safe until next year and, and uh, we might take the Jew horse horse and then see where we go after that. Welcome back. Really pleased to say uh, I'm joined by a, a young and very talented rider who has just experienced a, an unusual bump in the road. Uh, the Mirror broke the story at the back end of, of last week. Uh, Harry Burns, jockey with Crohn's disease, hit with a ban for not declaring his new prescription. Uh, a clerical error, you might think, uh, for the BHA, uh, a serious matter, and it's landed Harry with a two-month suspension, which many of you have written to us saying seems incredibly harsh. Um, Harry, really good to see you. Uh, what's been a 
quite a challenging time for you really hasn't it yeah um last few weeks have been have been quite stressful um but i mean it's it's, it's all over and done with now um and like i said look i i know i done wrong um for 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 not declaring this this medication mm -hmm. the bha have just followed protocol um and they've followed the guidelines um but i do just feel that the penalty probably is a bit harsh um considering you know the whole ordeal happened uh, in march so um this so is it was, it was actually in march you found out that something had flagged up yeah so you know this ban is i'm not being banned for a substance i'm being banned as punishment mm -hmm. so i just feel two months is 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 probably a bit harsh in my opinion yet but you're being banned because you were taking some medicine that you hadn't disclosed to the BHA. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? yeah. Um, and would you have been able to ride on that medicine had you disclosed it? Is that what the ban's for, the non-disclosure? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've been riding on the medication since. Um, I had to do a concussion test. Luckily, my annual concussion test came in at the time when I had this um, urine test. So, mm -hmm. um, luckily, I didn't actually miss any days. Um, but I was meant to sort of have a concussion test when I started the medication in January, and mm -hmm. I didn't. Um, but yeah, like I say, it's, um, it is all, it all it is very confusing. Um, but hopefully we can um, just try and move on now, and you know the band's in place, so there's nothing anyone can do. So hopefully we can just um, keep our heads down and, and keep working hard. I think the important thing, obviously, is if there are other people who have illnesses, conditions that need management, that they're aware of your case so that this sort of thing doesn't doesn't happen to them. Tell me a little bit about about Crohn's disease and your management of it and living with it and how, how difficult that is. Yeah, so Crohn's disease is a it's, it's an irritable, it's an inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it's where your immune system attacks itself mm -hmm. um, and then it can attack your gut as well. Um, so a lot of Crohn's medications weaken your immune system to stop your immune system fighting itself um, and it can cause flare-ups, abdominal pain, um, you know, loss of appetite, fatigue. Um, like at one point, I think, I remember when I got diagnosed, I sort of got down to about six stone, I think it was. Really? Uh, yeah. And so how old um, were you when you got diagnosed? So I got diagnosed, um, it was actually a few weeks before my last year at school. And I missed the first two weeks of my last year at school. Um, and I remember going into my classroom because I, I spent two weeks in the Royal London, because um, at the time that was a, that was mm -hmm. a local hospital. In Whitechapel? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I just remember, I remember going into the class and uh, all my mates were there because I'd missed two weeks and they sort of threw their hands <laughs> in the air. But I remember I, I, wasn't, I wasn't very healthy. Um, but I avoided surgery up until um, 2016. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the intestine is made up of three layers. Mm -hmm. um, you've got an inner layer, a mid layer, and an outer layer. Um, and the inner layer is used for taking in nutrients. Um, and if inflammation at the time gets through the mid and outer layer, it can cause abscesses and um, fistulas and lots of other complications. Um, Unfortunately, it leaked through my intestine in 2016, um, and I had an abscess in my leg. Um, but it was right next to an artery, 
so it, it got a bit confusing and I didn't actually, uh, to tell you the truth, I, th I thought I had a groin strain. So I left it for a week. Um, I was working at Dunlop's at the time um, and I sort of went to the GP, I said, I'm really not feeling right here. Um, so they checked my heart rate, blah, blah, she said, did you drive here? And I said, yeah. Um, and she said, you're going to need to come get someone to get your car because I'm going to have to call you an ambulance. I think you've got sepsis. Oh so, God. yeah, um, so with that, um, I said I didn't want an ambulance. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll get my own way there. Luckily, Mrs Dunlop actually drove me to a &E, um, and then they put, they put a drain in my leg um, to try and drain this abscess, and it worked for a, a couple of weeks. It's quite a tricky procedure because it was right next to an artery. Um, but then, unfortunately, it came straight back once they took the drain out, and um, I think two days later, I ended up having an ileostomy bag. Yeah, um, which isn't what any 22-year-old wants no. when they're sort of meant to be enjoying life, going out, having fun. Um, and I was quite demoralised by that, to be, on to be honest. Yeah, it was um, it was a long, hard process, but I got very supportive family. You know, my mum and dad were brilliant. Um, and yeah, luckily it got a reversal. So it got reversed. I'd imagine at that time the furthest thing from your mind was was being able to to pursue a career as a jockey. Yeah, time. yeah, that was, for me, that was completely off the cards. Um, I did, I rode, I rode Dunlop's hack while I having this ileostomy bag. Because, um, to be honest, it doesn't stop you doing anything. Mm. And if anything, it, it's probably the best I've ever felt with this. It's just there, you know. Um, and it does make you feel good. And I remember riding the hack at, at Dunlop's. Um, and it was fine, but ri race riding was definitely off the cards, yeah. Um, but then when I got it reversed, they actually removed 30 centimetres of my of my bow as well. Mm -hmm. um, so then I, I, once I recovered out of that and came out of that, um, I thought I'd I'd give it another crack. Yeah, um, but that was in that was in 2018. Yeah. So obviously now riding with with the after effects of that and with constant Crohn's, mm. you have to medicate. You have to kind of just keep yourself in the right yeah. the right weight, yeah. the right health. How do you do that? Um, well, I, currently I am on medications. There is, there has been periods throughout the years where I've tried to go unmedicated, and it's worked for a time. Um, but the, the 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 scary thing about Crohn's is you can be as healthy as you like, and I could wake up tomorrow and I'll be having a flare up, and I'll uh, relapse. Um, and will that will that completely knock you out of doing anything productive? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I mean, I I usually struggle quite bad with loss of appetite um, and I know when I've, I've I'm a flare-ups coming because I don't want to eat much um, the, the the extreme fatigue is the is the killer as well in this job you've obviously mm. you know you've got a lightweight you've got a couple of pounds to lose I stay away from caffeine as much as I can because that and caffeine in my stomach doesn't go well um, so like a lot of the lads are like, you know, rely on Red Bull and, and, and coffee. I can only have one coffee a day, otherwise that that's me for the day. Um, so I've been wasting for a day and I've not been eating. Um, you know, I can't have caffeine. So I've really got a, a plus I've got fatigue, so it, it can be a struggle sometimes. Um, but I'm, I'm just getting on with it, yeah. So why did you resolve to really want to do this, to, to ride? Because there's a lot more stress-free things you could have done for your body and for your mind surely yeah no it's it's it's, it's something i love um um and i've you know I've, 
I left school at 16 and went straight into racing, having, having not sat on a racehorse. Um, and I sort of clicked with it straight away. Um, and I've, I've, I've been around as well. I worked in Hong Kong for a period. Um, How was that? Brilliant. Loved it, yeah. I only came back because of COVID. Um, so if, if COVID-19 if COVID didn't break out, I, I may have still been out there just riding track work. But um, I came back and, and Joseph Pye, who's a good friend of mine, um, he rang me and said, said, what are you doing? And I just said, I'm, I'm just quarantining because I'm back from Hong Kong. And he says, oh, he bought a couple of, he bought a couple of breeze ups at the time, um, horses and said, do you mind, do you mind popping in and, and, and riding a couple of them out? I says, yeah. And my weight, some, my weight was actually really good at the time. Um, and he was, he said, Joe says, uh, a few weeks later, he says, why don't you get, why don't you get license back out? So, um, I thought I thought we'd go for it, yeah. So I, I spent the first season back 2021 with Joe, um, Joseph, um, and I rode 15 winners, and he, he supported me massively. Um, and then I, I thought if I want to progress, I, mm. I probably need to try and start getting on a sort of bit better caliber horse. Um, so I, I, I spoke with Joe, and, and I rode a winner for the Chrisfords in the, that winter. Um, so I gave them a phone call. I said, would you be interested in, in, in sort of having me in? Um, and be and, and being your sort of stable stable claimer, if you like, um, and they they were keen for it, and I've sort of never looked back since. Yeah, I've ridden some really nice horses for for the Chriswoods. And what sort of environment is it there? That's brilliant. Yeah, is it? It's good fun. Got a great team. Yeah, Simon and Ed. A bit, How do they work together? How, what's the yin and yang like? It's actually very good. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, I've never I've never seen them argue, um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he is very good and he's very much a joint team effort. No one's sort of, no one's higher, no one's lower. Um, and they've got brilliant work riders, good head lads. Um, Travelling staff are brilliant. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a real good atmosphere. He is good. So you've now got two months on the sidelines. Yeah. What are you going to do? Um, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm definitely going on holiday. I'm going to take my girlfriend on holiday because she's put up with it just as much as me. Um, Have you been difficult to live with the last few months? Um... I see. I'm. I'm not. I'm not one. I don't take my sort of stress out on other people. I just sort of lock it up, because again, with Crohn's, stress can be really, really um, bad for Crohn's. Hence why, like when I, when the process with the BHA come out, that's why I ask for it to sort of stay private, because I don't need the stress. Um, and sort of going back to when I first started race riding, um, adrenaline is a it's a stress hormone. Mm -hmm. So when I was going out, my first few rides, the adrenaline was obviously pumping, um, and a few days later, I'd feel a bit rough, and I'm like, why, why am I feeling rough? You know, I'm, I'm riding, I'm getting rides, I'm starting off, um, and it's not till now, you know, sort of the last two years where I'm a bit older, I'm a bit more mature, race riding's a lot, I'm, I deal with the race, pressures of race riding very well now, um, and I've got very supportive people around me. So you don't have these huge adrenaline spikes, which means you don't have the crashes quite as bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and I just sort of just try and keep composed, um, keep keep focused, um, and try not to let the adrenaline sort of get the better of us. Because adrenaline is a good thing, but at the end of the day, it is a stress hormone, and if you if I have too much stress, I could relapse. So I've just got to try and stay as calm as I can. And when it comes to, you know, I've, I've ridden horses, I've lost rides on them, and I, that's absolutely fine by me now. I fully accept it, you know. You can see why lads get, get angry or, you know, or, you know, oh, I've done nothing wrong on that. 
and then so and so's riding it and now I just um I just, just take it on the chin. Got a you know, and I'm I'm more than happy to do that. I'm just happy to be riding in the first place. And fifty five winners from around five hundred rides is, is no mean achievement at the stage of your career. I mean, Richard, there's some pretty key life lessons for all of us here, I think, but also some some significant inspiration for people who think, well, I can't be a professional sportsman because I've got this or that. Absolutely, and I think, forget the, the ins and outs of the BHA just for a moment, we might come back to it, but it, the point is that you don't realise some of the challenges that people face on a day-to-day -day basis, and in this it is pretty significant, just checking to Harry beforehand to try and understand a little bit more about it. Um, I do know a couple of people who also suffer, but they, mm. they, be honest, if they are honest, they would suffer for day-to-day -day existence going to work, let alone, if you like, inducing some of those factors that make it yeah. harder for you to cope with. That creates a massive extra barrier. I think I'm right in saying Jack Leach suffers from Crohn's disease. The I England think, yeah. mm. And I, th I remember seeing a documentary about how he was battling um, more the psychological aspects, I think. And that's the point, mm -hmm. is it's not just a physical illness as regards that, although some of what you're talking about yeah. is very physical. It must be the way that you're only 24 hours away from being back in that situation, which you can't control. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, 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 and that's the thing. It can, it can affect your mental health. Um, I know people with the Crohn's that they don't like leaving the house out of fear that, you know, or... Like for me, for instance, if I'm going somewhere, I won't, I won't have a big breakfast. I won't. I, hence, why I allow for caffeine and, and whatnot, just to try and keep everything go as smooth as possible. But there is people that, are, you know, anxiety is quite a big thing with Crohn's as well. And um, yeah, it, it, it can be, it can be a struggle. But you know, there is a lot of help and support out there. So it is, um, you know, it's, it's manageable at the minute. Yeah. And are you able now? to, when you come back riding, use the same medication that you've been banned for, effectively, as long as the BHA know what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a simple, basically you've made a clerical error. Yeah. And you've got a two month ban, and that's the entry point for the ban. Yeah, you know. And, and that's, and that, I mean. That's the, that's the point, there's the about what you'd like to gain out of this, and I think that was the, you know, it's, it is the entry point. They have no, given, no, they no have given the appeal. minimum. And there yeah. are legitimate reasons why this rule as a whole would be in place, aren't there, in terms yeah. of, Safety. you know, yes, yeah. of course, in terms of any, any medication you ride under needs to be disclosed. But I think in your case, the mitigating circumstances, as we've heard, is so great that maybe a wider uh, span of um, penalty would be more appropriate if it's clearly at the lower end of the scale and perhaps mm. if you can learn anything from that. And I suppose as well that we've spread this so many times, but this was March? Uh, yeah. So yeah. you've had that length of time in circumstances where anxiety is a contributory factor to inflammation. So I suppose that would be the other more timely um, mm. dealing with yeah. it would have probably been yeah. better. So yeah. there's definitely, I think there's definitely a couple of lessons to be learned from for, for the BHA. Have you, you, have you felt that there's been a deal of sympathy towards you, notwithstanding all of that, or not? Um, I mean, from the from the public and every, everyone on social media have been have been brilliant. Um, but I mean, t for me, the BHA have just sort of looked at the rules. I mean, have they taken into account certain things? I'm 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 not so sure. Um, but like I say, I can't really argue because they have given me entry point. It's the minimum they could have given me. Mm. Um, but is the, you know, have, has anyone put their arm around you and said, look, 
I'm really sorry this has happened. Let's help you manage this situation. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a lot of support um, from, from a lot of people. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, is I've, I've taken it on the chin now. I've now accepted it, so I'm, I'm a lot better now. Um, I've, got a, I've got a plan in place for what I'm going to do for the next two months. Um, I'm going to keep riding out at the Christmas most days. Um, going to try and get away on, on, on a little holiday. Um, and what about a plan beyond that? And what about ambitions beyond that? I mean, I'm, I've, I've, so I've, I've got a new agent, um, James, um, and that's, this is the other uh, frustrating thing. I was actually really starting to get rolling, um, riding nearly every day. I'm, I think I rode for a, a lot of few new contacts. Um, and then this sort of happened, so it sort of put a bit of a dent in it. Um, but James has been brilliant. Um, you know, he's he's fully aware of, of the situation I've got, and he works well. I speak to him, I speak to him every day. Um, and you know, I sort of I sort of say to him, sort of, you're the boss, because, yeah. you know, like if I'm not riding something, fair enough. So um, I'll never ring up and say, why am I not riding that? Why am I not riding this? Because, you know, I've got the utmost faith that he's doing his job. Um, so and and. Working with James is, you know, also pretty crucial for the stress side of things. I don't need to ring him up and say, why am I not running that? And then, because um, I know that he, he's on the ball. So um, we're going to give this winter a good kick and yeah. really, really try, try and um, not touch up the winners over the, uh, over the winter. Uh, really pleased to welcome to the sofa alongside Richard and Neil Abby McGregor from the Gambling Consumer Forum. We were not going to let this week or any other week pass without talking about racing and gambling's constant struggle within government to understand its place in the world and to understand exactly how we're all going to move forward for the profitability of the sport and for the satisfaction of all gamblers, all punters. Um, Abby, just tell us a little bit first of all, for those who aren't familiar, what is the uh, Gambling Consumer Forum? So the Gamblers Consumer Forum was set up to represent those in the debate who have never been consulted properly in mm -hmm. the debate on gambling regulation, which is ordinary healthy gamblers. But actually along the way, we've ended up representing two groups that we didn't really expect to, which was recovering addicts and clinicians who have got a specialisation in addiction recovery, who are currently very frustrated with the direction of travel. Because there's a narrative out there that it's possible to regulate addiction out of existence and the reason why those three groups haven't been consulted on is because all three of them would know in their own way that that is a completely impossible goal. The problem is it's a very virtuous one and that means it doesn't receive the same amount of scrutiny mm -hmm. that something else would. It means it doesn't matter that the CEO of the Gambling Commission, Andrew Rhodes, said that he doesn't actually define what gambling harm is and it means that collateral damage to industries and to people is largely ignored. But either way, however you see it, the government and the Gambling Commission's gambling reforms are already condemned to failure because they don't understand addiction. So how did you get involved in the first place? What was your entry into, into this? So I come from a background of neuroscience myself. Mm -hmm. And from the, uh, my own knowledge and the addiction recovery specialists that we've been talking to, it's quite clear that the gambling white paper as a whole is predicated on the false assumption that everyone could be one better away from addiction. And that's generated from another myth that the industry is the primary motivator behind addiction. 
Now, I believe from my, my own experience and, as I said, from the clinicians that I've been speaking to, that addiction is created by your genetics and then spurred on by trauma and exposure. But you have to have all three because if you didn't, if you just needed the exposure, why are we not all addicted? And I don't just mean gambling either. You think about all of the addictive agents that are readily available to us as adults. Now, the only thing that is going to confront those cognitive compulsions and manage that trauma and exposure is clinical treatment. Anything else is merely a substitute for the real solution because things like affordability checks, uh, closing gambling accounts and bank accounts, maximum stakes on slots, they address my ability to bet, they reduce it. But what they haven't done is tackled my compulsion to bet. And ministers in the Gambling Commission have deluded themselves into thinking they can solve a very clinical problem with non-clinical solutions. So this is being purely driven from your knowledge of neuroscience and your clinical research? Well, I'm also a massive horse racing fan. I own a horse, um, have been watching horse racing for or oh, I think it must be 20 years now. And we have to recognise that when we regulate things, because I also come from a background of politics too, we have to be really very careful when we do it. And there's a really good example at play uh, that we can see right now in another addiction, in alcohol. Now, one of the most uh, successful addiction recovery methods is Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And that actually gets alcoholics to acknowledge their addiction and opt for that clinical help. At the same time, Scotland recently introduced minimum alcohol pricing, and that obviously makes alcoholic products more expensive. It sort of cuts out that cheap cider that you can buy in the supermarket. But what they actually saw was that rather than not buying alcohol at all and excluding a whole group of people from buying alcohol, those who were addicted to alcohol, actually the money that they were going to spend on food, they now spent on alcohol. And as a result, death by alcohol in Scotland has gotten to a 14-year high. So whilst you've got clinical solutions that help identify, treat and manage an addiction, you've got non-clinical solutions that have actually made the problem far, far worse. So how are the racing and betting industries doing, in your opinion, getting their message across? Well, I think they've definitely stepped it up in terms of the massive collateral damage um, that, horse ra that horse racing will suffer. But I think that everyone has to realize who are the opponents that we're dealing with here. The government want to be seen to be doing something on gambling harm and it is a very noble goal to do so but it's important that we get it right and they are more concerned about seen to be doing something about gambling harm than they are the future of horse racing unfortunately. That's just political optics and that's always been the case. More people care about public health than they do about horse racing. So I do think there needs to be a better conversation, not just about the future of the sport, mm. but a recognition that actually horse racing is an economic powerhouse. There are 61 race courses in this country, which means that there's, they're basically hubs for jobs and opportunities, particularly for young people. So we should be making more of the fact that if you cut off the supply chain for horse racing, you're disadvantaging all these communities that actually rely on horse racing because the reality is some people don't care about gambling, but people do care about jobs. Neil Channing, um, mm. you've listened to a lot of what Abby's had to say. Uh, there is surely a need for the, dare I say it, ordinary punter to be represented in these consultations with, with government? 
Yeah, I, I mean, all the way along, it's been, I've said this many times on the show, but the, the debate has been presented as mm. one between the operators, uh, the large gambling conglomerates, and, uh, and the people who want gambling reform, you know, people representing the families of suicide victims and uh, people who generally, uh, you know, range from abolitionists to people who just want to see gambling reform. Now, lots of ordinary punters don't mind some reform of gambling. It's not like we're all saying that the gambling industry has been perfect, which is, which is why I hate that framing, because I don't really want to align with gambling conglomerates, many of whom have done some terrible things in the past and allowed people to gamble wildly more money than they should be allowed to. But I just feel that affordability checks, it's, it's not a practical solution to the problem. I don't trust the companies with the information, and I actually think they've got plenty of information already to deal with, with problem gamblers, and you know they haven't done a very good job of it. I mean, all companies have markers of harm. Uh, they can see if people are having their card declined when they try and deposit, if they spend 16 hours a day on the site, if they bet on eight different sports within a day. Uh, they don't really do very much with that information other than sometimes pop up in the chat and say, are you okay? And you say, yes, I'm fine. And then they go away. Um, it's, it's to, to go from that step to suddenly saying, right, I want to see a year's bank statements. I want to find out your P60, your company accounts, your share certificates, and, and, and put you through all of that. Seems like a massive jump when they don't really do very much with the information they've got already. As somebody who bets for a living, mm. Uh, and has done for, for many years. Yeah. Uh, do you recognise what Abby was saying about what makes a gambling addict clinically? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, I, I broadly agree with what Abby's saying. I, 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 where I slightly struggle with Abby is I don't really like it when we veer off and start talking about smoking and drinking because I, I don't see the products in the same way. I just feel like uh, you know, anybody that has one cigarette, that's bad for you inherently. You know, you, you, there, there is no benefit to smoking. Whereas for most people that gamble, it's absolutely fine. You know, I get criticised occasionally. People always want to call me a hypocrite for one reason or another. And people say to me, well, you're only sticking up for gambling because that's a thing that you enjoy, whereas you're a non-smoker, so you don't stick up for smoking. Well, smoking in 100% of cases is bad for you. Whereas gambling, in almost all cases, is perfectly fine for you. Uh, it's much more akin to me to going to concerts or going to the cinema or something like that, where you're not getting a physical product, but you're gaining enjoyment for your money. But some people do get carried away and spend too much money on those things. Abby? Well, I think that it's important not to... I would, I would never compare gambling with smoking mm. because I agree that it's an indiscriminately harmful product, mm. whereas, as you say, gambling, even drinking, can be enjoyed by many people mm. healthily. But I do think it's important that you learn the lessons from past regulation and even things like smoking. So it's not a comparison between mm. gambling and smoking. It's a comparison between the legislation that mm. it involves. So smoking rates are falling in nearly all developed countries mm. they're falling in places where um, the commercial freedoms of cigarette companies are heavily restricted like in Britain and they're falling in places where you can openly advertise on a billboard like in Germany but what hasn't gone down is nicotine use mm. so the policymakers and the lawmakers have done what I call pat on the back syndrome they say oh we've done a very good job haven't we we've got smoking rates down but actually what that's masked is the real addictive agent 
which is the nicotine. So it's important that we recognise uh, where past regulation has failed and make sure we don't make the same mistakes in gambling regulation. And there are lots of people, I think, optimistically perhaps say, oh, you know, affordability checks, they're impractical, they'll never work. And this idea that the government will then recognise, oh, well, they, they didn't work, we'll get rid of them. Governments mm. never go backwards. They well, never they, reduce they, their mean, power. The, the, you know, the other thing that people always talk about in legislation is we want it to be evidence-based. And obviously we've had various calls for evidence. Uh, but now, you know, we have, like you say, we have a gambling commission that can't even define what problem gambling is. Uh, and we have uh, the evidence that is being paid for is often coming from people who have an axe to grind against the, the gambling point industry. That gambling is a harmful yeah, absolutely. activity. Yeah. So, but the, the problem with once you get to affordability checks, when it doesn't have any effect, because it mm. won't, there's no clinical basis for affordability checks whatsoever, when it doesn't work, the government will then say it didn't work not because it was an impractical policy, but because it didn't go far enough. But also, so we have to uh, but also in, the whole, in the whole process, there's been very little talk about measurements of success I mean that like There's how no are we going to know whether if affordability checks do come in and they uh, you know which the gambling minister says he doesn't really want to see generally uh, but we're, we have no way of judging whether they're successful or not because nobody's even thought about mm, that. Unfortunately we live in a world now where regulators and governments feel that they have to be seen to be doing something and so they will be seen to be doing something virtuously optic mm. no matter whether it will be successful well, or in not. The, I mean, my, I remain slightly optimistic because in the last couple of weeks we had this um, parliamentary session where the DCMS committee uh, questioned the um, Andrew Rose, the chair of the Gambling Commission, and then uh, Stuart Andrew, the Gambling Minister, and they came up with contradictory statements uh, because um, basically Stuart Andrew is saying that he wants to see frictionless checks. Uh, and he doesn't believe in most cases that uh, any kind of affordability check with sending in bank details, that kind of thing, is going to be necessary. And he doesn't want to see that sort of thing. And obviously people living in the real world know that that's exactly what's been happening for over yeah, two years definitely. now. Um, my understanding is that um, the BHA have been meeting with Stuart Andrew and pointed out the error of his ways in, in, in this confusion. Uh, and that he has now spoken to uh, Andrew Rhodes and said to him that as far as he's concerned, he would like him to stick to the letter of the white paper, you know, in as far as it's possible in all situations. So I, I don't know whether that's going to be a kind of reining in of the Gambling Commission or, or how that's going to pan out. But my understanding is that's what Stuart Andrew would like to see happen. Well, he's bred for the job, he's learned from the best, and he's making a quick impression. Welcome Ollie Sangster, rookie trainer to the show, with pattern races under his belt and much to look forward to. We're in the middle of sales season as well. Neil Channing's chowing down on one of those uh, pastries that'll keep him quiet for a little I while. I, one thing want, I, I do want to have one while Harry was talking about his Crohn's disease. <laughs> one, one, one thing I don't want to do, Ollie, is to, is to keep you quiet, because you are making, making a little bit of a splash. You would say... This has been quite a long time coming, I think, even though we would look at you and think, well, he's fresh out of school. Not quite so, is it? There's a lot of experience under the belt. Uh, yeah, I'd say I was, I was ready to get going anyway, but uh, naturally any new business, you're, you're cautious as to, as to how it's going to start, but thankfully it's, it's started the way I would have hoped it had, yeah. 
and I know how determined you are to make a go of it as as Ollie Sangster, not just a Sangster. But when the name is so legendary, when it's so steeped in the traditions of the game, you're never going to be able to to leave that behind or or forget about it. How how aware were you as a as a kid growing up of of how big a deal your family had been in the sport and how big a deal your grandfather had been? Uh, I would say positively sort of unaware, really. Really. You know? uh, Lucky to have grown up at Manton, sure horses, horses were always out the window and that was sort of, sort of second nature. Um, but obviously a lot of the success came, I suppose, at the end of the 70s, the 80s, and you know, that's way before my time. And, and you know, obviously, lucky people always saying what a great man he was and all the, you know, all the good horses they could recount. But, but as far as me being a kid growing up, you know, f fairly sort of, yeah, wouldn't have been as prevalent as you might have thought, yeah. But the passion was obviously... Yeah, the in, passion in was always there, and, and, and like I said, lucky to have grown up around the horses, and, and I've always worked and worked, you know, enjoyed the horses since a young age, so, so inevitably me going into the industry was never a huge surprise, you know? And tell me about how, how your parents felt about how you going into the industry. Um, I'd, I'd say, I'd say make mixed emotions, you know, you know on, on one hand I'm sure delighted that, that you're, you're following them into it, um, but, but equally, you know, they, they know the trials and tribulations of the industry and were naturally cautious and perhaps thought perhaps I was best to have pursued something else beforehand, you know. Um, it's obviously a, a tricky industry and, and, and we're all aware of that. So, so I mean, mum initially thought that it would be better maybe to go and learn another occupation first and then you always have that to fall back on. Um, but, but no, no, this was always the way I was going to go and once, once that was set in stone, they've always been very supportive since then, yeah. And in a nice way, you do strike me as a guy in a bit of a hurry as well you, you weren't going to be super patient to try out a load of other things uh no look look once i once i had my heart set on this you know you know that was always the way we were going to go what was it about the whole business that was was driving you was it always training was it always that no not always that i, I love the bloodstock obviously mm. dad breeds horses so so we've always uh you know been associated with that and that's a that's a still still is a big th thing for me now i love working the sales i love pedigrees i love all of that so so i could have gone that way but but for me the training I love it because it's sort of so much more, it's, it's, it's quicker, it's more results based. Obviously, so is the bloodstock, but it's more sort of day to day. And, mm -hmm. and I love working with the horses on a more day to day nature and the sort of high performance nature of the training as well, as opposed to the bloodstock. But, but I mean, really, obviously, the two go very hand in hand, and, and I love them both, you know. I read that there was a moment where there was a bit of a fork in the road and you were nearly off to university. Yeah, after yeah. School. Yeah, again, na naturally, I left school and. You know, did you did you do well? Were you good at school? Yeah, yeah, I was per perfectly bright enough, and, and I had places at decent enough universities. Um, I think I was going to go do business or economics or one of those, which is which is fine. Um, but naturally, this was the route I was always going to take. So going and spending three, four years at university doing a business degree, to then come out and start at the bottom, which invariably you have to do in racing, mm -hmm. and be mucking out and learning from the bottom. It it it, it didn't seem to make sense, and it, to me, it made more sense to start doing that when I was. 18 and start doing it when I was 21, 22. The thing is, Richard, I think you've got to have quite a bit of presence of mind to do that because you're swimming against the tide. You know, if you're if all your peers are going to further education and well, you're saying, <coughs> no, I'm brave enough to back myself to do this, 
it is swimming against the tide, really. I suppose so. It's interesting, because I didn't go to university either. I had a place and I went to Poly because it got me into accounting at that stage, which was where I was going within a year, rather than doing a three- or four-year degree, because that's where I was going to go, and as you say... So you knew you wanted to, be, to work with numbers, well, work, work as an accountant? Yeah, basically, that's where I decided I was going to go, and the, the, in those days, there was a route into the industry. They took um, both relevant and non-relevant mm. graduates after three or four years, and there used to be a route through polys, which, of course, don't exist anymore, of a year doing an accounting where you had to have your job arranged in advance. So it's a bit like, you know, you, you decided you were going to go and start training and you'd arrange to go to Gay Water House or Wesley Wardershaw sort of training operation because it gets you out there quicker. <clears throat> you begin to learn what you want to do. All it taught me was that, well, eventually that I didn't want to do it right the way through, but that's not the point. So I, I do sympathise with that sort of approach. If you know where you're going, you may as well get on with it rather than yeah. let your life go off <laughs> in a different tangent particularly if you're at university for three years. Yeah, and, and like you said, sure, there were definitely times when I was probably waking up and going to work and, and, and my friends were getting in, you know? So, so um, <laughs> you know, it, it, there were times when it was tough, you know? But, but uh, the way I'm wired, that was always the, the better route for me, having a sort of uh, fairly sort of relaxed sort of schedule that university can offer you just, for me, wouldn't have suited me. And having a routine and a structure and everything, that's, for me, would always have... have you know, been the much more viable thing to do. So, so actually, I don't think university would have worked for me, but due to what I wanted to do, that, that was never going to happen anyway. I found it suited me rather too well, which is why I have great admiration for, for your work ethic. I mean, to what extent, given what we've discussed, did you feel like I need to work two to everybody else's one because I want to prove to people that I've not just been silver-spooned for the last however many years? Um... I think when I started, like, like anyone, you're, you're a kid and you just want to get your foot in the door and get going. Um, I didn't, when I went to America to work for Wesley, I didn't really have the option of working no. two to one. That, just, that was just how it was. It was just hard work. Um, but, but very rewarding work as well. Um, Tell me why it was such, so intense. Uh, so it, when you go to Keenan or Saratoga, you know, they have full cards of racing. Uh, Saratoga, it's six days a week for, you know, the best part of two and a half months. Um, and then on top of that, then you have the sales in August, and you have full teams of horses, staff, you know, everything. And then on top of that, you have a trainer that's not there the whole time. So, but, you know, these trainers are running two, three, multiple stables. So you, you, you end up being their representative, but more so than, you know, just a representative of the races. You know, you're, you're sort of running the stable. You're, you're their eyes and ears. You're, you're, yeah, so it's, it's a 24-7, you know, there's no Sundays off. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's and full on. And you're, what, like 19, 20 at the time? Yeah, I was uh, 21 and yeah. 22 those and, two years. And they yeah. just, he basically just chucks you the ball and say, get on with it. Definitely. For, I mean, look, when I started, I was riding out, and, and, and but things sort of progressed quickly. But na naturally as well over there, you have a lot of, um, a lot of the employees you have are, Hispanic and whatever, so so the fact that you're English and whatever is, or English speaking anyway, is a is a is a positive, you know, and and, and helpful for dealing with owners and what have you, you know. So so, um, but yeah, it was it was a steep learning curve, but one that I'm definitely glad that I was able to do. Yeah. And would that then make you more inclined to give somebody who was just starting out more responsibility? Would you have that confidence? Yeah, I think so. I think giving someone responsibility is the fastest way to learn, and naturally. I'm, I'll easily say I've, I've probably made loads of mistakes, but hopefully you don't make the same mistakes twice, and um, that's the, you know, the fastest way to learn, I think, yeah. Okay, what has made him what he is? What did you learn from him? I think he's just an out-and-out -out horseman, really, you know? He, he's very hands-on, uh, loves nothing more than 
I mean, he still breaks in a lot of the yearlings himself, you know. Um, loves nothing more than the horses and he'd know every horse inside out. And um, yeah, he's just a real out and out horseman, yeah. So he's, I mean, he still loves to, as you say, still loves to ride. He's still yeah. very much sort of... Yeah. And, and do, are you, do, are, do you feel like you're in that mould? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, Wesley's in his 50s, so the fact that he's still breaking them in is fairly fairly remarkable. But but I, I broke in most of my yearlings myself last year. I still ride out, not most days, but but a good few days a week. And, and But because I can, I kind of, you know, I, I, I prefer doing that to sort of just sitting in the Jeep all morning. So mm. I'm sure there's a, there'll be a time when the tides will change a bit, but, but for now I definitely enjoy getting my hands dirty and getting stuck in. Yeah. And in terms of the actual training, I mean, I, I've heard it said quite a lot that you're not quite sure how he's doing what he's doing, but you just kind of watch and learn and try and pick it up as you go along. Is, is there something in that? Yeah, he's a bit of a sort of, I don't know, sort of mad magician. Like, a lot of it's in his head, but after a certain period of time of working for him, you sort of start to unravel it all yourself and work out. And after a while, naturally, because when you're running these stables, you're, you're doing basically what's in his head, that you're, you know, um, applying it, so you, you do start start to unravel it and, and and work out the systems and what have you. But but it definitely took more time because the way he runs it is he he's very um, you know he's got his finger on the pulse and it's 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 a lot more from his head. It's not so much from spreadsheets and boards and lists. You know it's it happens as it as the morning goes on. You know so you have to be quick thinking, but but in a in a good way. You know. And where else have you been to kind of acquire the the knowledge that you've got now? Uh, I had a good. Just shy of two years at Joseph O'Brien's base there, um, just literally before the yearling sales last year, um, which was great. Uh, I, my first, my first real sort of season here was with uh, Charlie and Barry Hills there, which was which was great. But again, I was I was a kid, um, and then I did a year COVID year um, at Hugo Palmer's just after George had left, which was good. But COVID sort of marred it a bit, and it made it sort of just didn't really work for me. Um, but but that was fine, still a good experience to learn the new market gallops and the new market systems, and yeah, it was good. Talk to me about Joseph O'Brien. How does he do what he does with that many horses and that many owners and that scale of operation? He seems to just do it with such cool-headedness. Yeah, I don't know. Look, it's, it's a big operation, and he's a very very driven guy, and he knows every horse inside out, and it's a, like, like you said, he's the sort of captain of the ship, but there's a lot of very good people underneath him, and, mm -hmm. and it all runs very smoothly and seamlessly and but he he's, he knows every horse inside out and he's yeah he's remarkable yep so did you have a time frame when you knew you were going to start no so, um, so how did it happen i thought it would be you know you know naturally i was happy with what i'd learned and i thought it would be you know somewhere late 20s but but ultimately you're starting a business you need to finance the business and get that off the ground um and long story short is i part owned a good filly last year saffron beach mm -hmm. um she was okay. With, with James Wigan and my parents, um, who we bought her to foal as a pin hook, and for varying reasons she didn't make it to the yearling sales. So, look, there's a lot of luck involved there. Um, and selling her basically enabled me to finance starting the business. And there's, you know, there's no, no mystery around that. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? You know, of all the, of all the great things that, are, that have happened to various members of your family over the years in terms of racehorses, that's a... That's a that's a pretty significant one. That's that's right up there. When when you bought her as a foal, you were going to reoffer her as a yearling. Yeah, and yeah. she got an injury. Yeah, we we bought a couple of foals that year, as as we would do every year. And during the yearling prep, we actually had a problem with um, one of her hooves, and just meant she missed a bit of the prep, and then she missed the sales, and then so we thought, okay, well maybe we'll breeze her. COVID year, breeze us. So we decided not to, um, so we broke her in at home, and so she went into Jane, I think, in 
July of her two-year-old year, you know, and then she, yeah, so the rest was great. I mean, was it you that picked her out originally? Um, no, she was bought by, well, we worked closely at the fold sales with Liam oh. Norris, um, top judge, very nice man, um, and we would cumulatively make lists between um, him, him, dad and myself, and then try and try and buy a couple of them off it, you know, naturally some of them fall within your budget, some of them don't, and she was one that did. Um, and then when we bought her, James Wigan approached Dad afterwards and said, "What's your, what a, I, I really like that for you just bought. What's your plan with her?" So we we told him it was to pinhook her and sell her the next year. So that's that's when he then got involved. And then, um, you know, obviously the, the, the pinhooking didn't didn't materialise, but but it was all for luck in the end, you know. So you turned fifty-five thousand into three point six million guineas. Yeah. With a yeah. bit of prize money along the way as well. Yeah, and, and some great, great days, great weekends, great trips. I actually wasn't there when she won the Sun Chariot. Uh, I was in Ireland, but watched it on TV, which was great. I was there in Dover when she won the Rothschild, which was amazing. Um, and yeah, you know, filly of a lifetime. So if I can find one half as good, that'd be great. And is that trading element of the game something you think is going to still be necessary? We hear it from a lot of young trainers now. I've got to keep my my eyes open to trade. Yeah, definitely. Uh, look. If I was looking at the books of my business this year, has the business made money out of training? No, but we've we've traded a few horses well this year, and that's ultimately, unfortunately, that like that's not the way we want things to go. But that that's ultimately the only reason that my business has done, has done okay this year. Um, and yeah, look, um, one of the horses left the yard, which is always disappointing. You don't want um, the other two have managed to stay, which is great. Um, we've got some nice new owners in the yard, which I'm delighted about. But um, yeah, ultimately, in terms of the, the general finance of the business through just training the horses, it, it's 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 there's not a massive margin in it. I don't, not for me anyway. Do I look at you or the camera? Can you see my uh, jockey sponsors on here? I'm trying to keep them happy, you know, pay me the big bucks. People ask, what race would you like to win more? Gold Cup or Grand National? For me, it's definitely the Welsh Jump Jockeys Derby. I can see it now. Jack Tudor, Derby winner. Really grateful for the opportunity from the, from the trainer. I think I'd do the flying dismount if I won. That'd be guaranteed front page of the Racing Post. You know, really happy with the, you know, the stable staff, the, the race course, the staff at the race course. Look, this obviously doesn't count towards the Jockeys Championship which I'm leading, by the way. But I'm a good guy, and I like to give back to racing when I can. I'm just really happy to be here. This race isn't all about speed. You've got to get your tactics right, you've got to have a good judge of pace, and you have to have a good feel for your horse. The trick to being a good jockey? Riding the fastest horse. Oh, Mum bought me this. Just don't tell James. Did I mention the horse? Really grateful to the horse. I'd obviously love to win the race, but as long as I can stay out of the way of James Bowen, that'll be great, because he's absolutely horrific. How he hasn't been stopped from riding yet, I'll never know. This? Oh, my mum bought me this. Don't tell Sean. What? We're using starting stores. They look a bit claustrophobic on the TV, don't you think? I'd rather jump the jumps. You know what it's like? You've got Sean Bowen thinking he's giving back to the game by gracing us with his presence. I'd love it if I beat him. Absolutely love it. Adam Wedge is riding in the race. He's not even Welsh, is he? 
don't even know why I'm here, to be honest. Grateful to my family as well and, you know, my pets. OK, you know. that's enough waffle. Thanks to the jockeys for this, but it isn't about them. It's about raising money for charity. In recent months, racing has got right behind Christian Williams and his family following the news that his daughter Betsy has been diagnosed with leukaemia. In support of the family, the Welsh Jump Jockeys Derby is raising money for Latch, a children's cancer charity. If you'd like to donate, please follow the instructions on screen. Do give generously if you can. That a brilliant video has been put together by <laughs> by Alan Johns, who dubs himself the boring jockey. But what are you? I don't know why you're riding horses when you can write scripts like that. I think all my creative juices have gone into one video. I think if I <laughs> if I try to replicate it again, I don't know if I'll be able to. So it came together well, though, didn't yeah, it? it? I think I was brilliant. giggling at my own. <laughs> I, 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 everyone had their own part to play. You were giggling at your own genius. Yeah. I, w I loved the Bowens. I thought yeah. they yeah. they played their parts extremely well. Yeah, absolutely. I was so I, I sent a screenshot to Sean of what I wanted him to say a few days leading up to it and he sent me a few laughing emojis and he said I do not know how I'm going to say that <laughs> but we had the filming set up in the in the waiting room at Chepstow and he came in after a few of the other boys had arrived and he he more or less stormed in right let's do this and he was he, he revved himself up so I think he nailed it anyway so and the the humor and the goodwill it it just goes to show what people <coughs> want to do to come together to support Christian uh, and and the Williams family through Betsy's fight with leukaemia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Phil Bell ca came to me um, a couple of months ago saying he wanted to do the Welsh, you know, this charity race with all the Welsh jump, jump jockeys, the talent we've got in Wales, and to do it in in support of of Betsy and the and the Williams family and all the fundraising efforts they'd made themselves really. So um, uh, he asked me to do it, and I was so so glad to get involved. And I actually spoke to Charlotte Christian's wife um, last week and. I got her to tell me all about the charity and it was quite inspirational really just how much the charities helped them um sort of i think they they helped sort of financially a lot and sort of just just with all sorts and the they provide a lot of fun and things for betsy to sort of get through a treatment which which goes on for two years and i think so from hearing the positivity she had towards the charity and then her positivity and the family's positivity towards their situation as well i actually gave me a you know, kick up the back. No, I just felt like motivated by it, really. So I just think, God, they've they've gone, they've done such a good job. Let's all get behind them and show our support. And the other thing that struck me watching that was just how how strong, but also how talented the group of Welsh-based and Welsh riders is. Absolutely, we've got a huge wealth of talent there, and like I was lucky to get in the video myself, really, I thought. But, I didn't uh, want to say <laughs> I didn't want to say <laughs> no, Luckily, you're quite funny, <laughs> so it's OK. <laughs> but, um, no, well, I had conversations with, with Phil Bell, so he's a, the regional director of ARC, and I, th I think it's six or seven courses, which and two of those include Foslas and Chepstow, and mm -hmm. he's always banging the drum that, you know, we've got this wealth of talent here, let's do something with it. And um, yeah, getting them. And there's a few missing there. I think um, Isabel and Ellie Williams uh, can make it on the day, and they're in the race. And we've got Robbie Williams as well, going to ride in the race. And we've got, you know, this huge wealth of talent. And I think it's um, this crowd of, of jockeys coming through, and it's just um, they've all got the right approach to the sport. They're all super professional, but they don't take themselves too seriously either. And they try and enjoy the good days, and they don't worry too much about the, the bad days. And it's just such a fun environment to be in. And I think it's. Um, it's great that they're pushing the, pushing the sport forward and our side of the border.
and the filmmaking is outstanding. Yeah, and also the written stuff as well. I mean, Alan won't blow his own trumpet with that regard, but there's a couple of really good blog pieces. No, we will have wrote. pushed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Particularly one about, you know, trying to explain to punters, who you were aiming at specifically at punters, yeah. as to why you hold a horse up. And it's an extensive sort of, you know, run through as to why what you see is often part of a game plan. It was really well written, and it, that sort I of thing. I thought that was great, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I noticed this week, like, there was something in the Racing Post about um, how uh, horse racing stables need to up their social media game, and the Fergal O'Brien stable have done really well with that. I think it's great when, you know, participants in the sport, you know, do good media stuff. You know, we're in a world where you've got a phone in your hand, you can just produce yeah. stuff. Tim did some good uh, stuff, didn't he, for National Racehorse yeah. Week as well, promoting that. Yeah, I, I, I actually think everybody's up their game massively. The mm. trainers, the social media, and just giving the sort of the behind the scenes sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, I agree. I, I think the only thing I'd probably add to that is I feel like as the participants of the sport, it's our job to try and make the sport more exciting and interesting yeah. and, and show the characters. I mean, you've got the betting side of it, which obviously brings uh, the, a number Yeah, you of fans. guys maybe don't want to... No, no, but, <laughs> no, no, but, but that, that's bringing in a certain of number course, of fans. Yeah, but of I think if the, yeah. if the sport's going to keep up with, you know, the, it's such a competitive market out there for people's um, attention, I yeah. think it's our job as the participants mm. to put our personalities across. No, I think that's but, a uh, really But also, good the point. two things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, you, you do your best to bring fans into the sport, fans will follow the sport, Fans will bet on the sport, mm. yeah. and we're all, we all, you know, benefit from it, or at least that's the idea. Those <laughs> sometimes those last two and a half hours, you, you're not quite sure. It's an amazing thing you're doing this. Um, just remind us when it's happening. So it's on October the 13th. Is that the the Friday of the mm. jump season opener at yeah. Chepstow? And um, we're just keen to raise as much money for the for the children's cancer charity Latch mm -hmm. which obviously does so much to, to help and as you know the, the Williams family themselves have benefited from so we're just keen to it's such a great cause I just think it's uh, there's so many things coming together as a bit of a synergy about it all I just think it's good to capitalize on it and yeah if we can raise as much money and you know if we can make a few people smile with our video along the way all, all the better well you have done www.justgiving.com forward slash page forward slash Chepstow races hyphen Latch if you would like to um, donate. Um, thanks so much for, for coming in. All getting geared up for the season ahead? Yeah, well, well I've, um, I've got a, sorry. Yeah, a couple of videos ready for Cannes Film Festival, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, no, Tim, Tim's got... Uh, Award season, yeah. Yeah, so uh, no, Tim Vaughan, who I obviously ride predominantly for, he's got 60 in this year, so his numbers are back up a bit, so the horses are in great form at home, and I'm, yeah, excited to get going now in October and busy winter laser ahead, hopefully.